you're asking people to implement early time restricted eating, then you're going to selectively reduce their intake of certain foods, given that most of us consume individual items in a somewhat time of day dependent way. Most people, if they eat cereal, they have it in the morning. If they drink alcohol, they have it late in the day. And if you look at diet quality over the course of the day, then I think it generally declines. And that's yeah. probably one way by which early time restricted eating is beneficial. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host Nathan Rose, and I'm thrilled to again be joined today all over from all the way over in the UK is uh, Greg Potter. I think it's the third time. Welcome back, Greg. Hat trick episode. <laughs> Got a uh, cricket analogy in there straight away, which probably none of our audience will ever understand. But <laughs> yeah, welcome back. <laughs> hey, how are you? Yeah, all right, mate. How are you? Um, I'm quite good. I think you're obviously um, different times of the day and different times of the seasons, but good to connect. So today we're here to, uh, I reached out to you a few weeks ago. There'd been a recent study published on time-restricted feeding, which has caused a bit of a stir online because the the results are interesting and caused some contention. So there's been a number of studies over recent years on time-restricted feeding and different types of sort of fasting interventions. So I wanted someone with a some of an agnostic view on on all things fasting and time restricted feeding in the context of our circadian biology. So I thought it'd be no better person to ask than yourself, and you've been kind enough to join me. So thanks again. You do some consultant work, uh, particularly like athletes and other um, folk. Have you had many questions around time restricted feeding? Are, are people interested in your community around like um, eating windows? Very interested especially in the last year or so. And I think there are a few different reasons for that. One is social media influencers who have jumped on the time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting bandwagon. Another is that there's been a surge in the number of scientists who have become influencers themselves. Mm -hmm. And this is quite an interesting phenomenon in many ways. I don't want to sound negative, but a lot of them make quite hyperbolic claims and seem to recommend what they do personally. And I find it strange that there appears to be a relative lack of discernment over the strength of the evidence backing up their claims. And I've seen so many of these people recently say something to the effect of when you eat is more important than what you eat. Yeah. And I have reservations about that notion. And these people are sometimes quite wedded to their opinions. I think in certain instances that reflects them having published books or having products available which creates vested interest, which is a bit of an issue. With all of that said, I think the net effect of these people is generally probably positive. Then there are powerful people, so think billionaires, who have become fascinated by the science of longevity. They've started dabbling with some quite speculative interventions that are intended to rejuvenate them. And there's lots of fresh money being pumped into startups aiming to extend health span. And then meanwhile, of course, there's been a flurry of research into time-restricted eating. It used to be done mostly by groups such as Sachin Pandas at the Salk Institute, but Mm -hmm. now there are dozens of research groups looking at it. And 
alongside all of that, the media are always quick to latch on to studies of nutrition. And it's now common to log into the BBC and see something related to meal timing on the homepage. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, when I open my phone app and look at the Apple News, there's often stories on um, time-restricted feeding. And uh, was it the uh, Twitter CEO who tweeted once that he only survives up one meal a day and that's his sort of secret to his success? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, rich people and some very influential people that are uh, promoting this. So we wanted to dive into the, the science today and look at some of the recent research from the human clinical trials. As you mentioned, um, people like Sachin Panda, who's been at our Congress previously, done some great animal research, but now, as you mentioned, the, the human trials are starting to emerge and they're probably not as um, powerful as the initial uh, animal studies, which is not unusual when it comes to um, biology and mice and things like the microbiome and things that always work really well in mice, but doesn't always translate to humans. Um, before we jump into it, you mentioned a couple terms just then, um, intermittent fasting, um, what was the other one? Uh, Time-restricted feeding, There's and we'll, we'll get into like um, fasting, mimicking diets. There's a lot of acronyms and a lot of terms. Can Before we jump into the research, can you maybe describe some of the, the key terms and phrases and concepts? Of course. And I'll break this down in a few ways. The first distinction is between fasting and non-fasting. And in my mind, intermittent fasting or periodic fasting is the occasional use of a fast of at least 24 hours. The second distinction is within the category of non-fasting. And the way that I think about this is that you can restrict some aspects of diet composition. One of these would be caloric restriction, so just reducing the total amount of different items that you consume. Another would be macronutrient restriction. That might, for instance, be a very low carbohydrate diet. Another would be food restriction, so eliminating certain food groups. This is the case with diets such as the paleo diet. Then within this composition restriction bucket, some use the term modified fasting for what in my book is restricting some aspect of diet composition. So for instance, Christopher has done a lot of the early work on alternate day fasting, but I don't think of this as fasting just in that on the so-called fasting days, people are still eating and they're consuming something like up to 25% of their energy needs right. on those modified fasting days. And then on the other days, they're either consuming their diets ad libitum or consuming slightly more than their needs. Another of these is the so-called 5-2 diet, which was popularized by Michael Mosley in the UK. I think first starting with a Horizon documentary, he since published a book and... The first study, though, on a 5-2-like diet was actually done in the early 1980s. Anyway, this 5-2 approach often entails around energy needs on five days each week. And then on the other two, having something like 25% of energy needs, or sometimes people might impose 500, 600 calorie diets on these days. Similar to these... You've got Volta Longo's fasting mimicking diet, which is a short-term, low-calorie, low-protein, low-carbohydrate diet. And in, in all of the above contexts, I don't really like the use of the term fasting, just because while some aspects of metabolism, for example, blood sugar control, might mimic a water fast, 
it's not as if all of the tissues in your body are undergoing fasting like physiology throughout this time. So think, for instance, of your gastrointestinal system, which still needs to digest and take up nutrients. And with that said, obviously there are benefits to these when compared to water only fast, for instance, I think a lot of people find the fasting mimicking diet more acceptable than just drinking water. Another form of restriction within this non-fasting category is time restriction. And relevant to this, you have what I refer to as a caloric period, but more colloquially people call it an eating window. It's basically the time elapsed from your first calorie of the day, or sometimes that's defined as the first item that contains at least five calories to the final calorie of the day. So if you had coffee with whole milk at 7 a.m. as your first item, and then a beer at 8 p.m., your caloric period would be 13 hours. And then time restriction typically entails restricting items of these calorie, restricting these calorie containing items to 12 hours or less each day. And You'll hear people talk about time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating. In my mind, time-restricted feeding refers to studies of non-human animals. Time-restricted eating refers to studies of humans. And then there's also early time-restricted eating. And I just want to add that <laughs> these are just my own definitions, but in my mind, this is finishing that caloric period by at least five hours before you fall asleep at night. So if you fell asleep at 11 p.m., then you would finish by 6 p.m. And then <clears throat> something to mention is that time restriction often entails caloric restriction or diet composition restriction, vice versa. You see this in other animals. Victoria Acosta Rodriguez published a really nice study on this about five years ago, and they used an automated feeder system that let them control when chow was given to mice. And they found that if they imposed caloric restriction, then it actually affected diet timing more severely than the time-restricted condition did in these animals, such that if you calorically restrict mice, they consume all of their food very, very quickly. Right. And that confounds a lot of those historic studies of caloric restriction. Ah, okay. But it also seems that some similar phenomena are taking place in humans too, and we'll circle back to this later. <clears throat> and then the final distinction that I'd make is that between intermittent and continuous application of these types of restriction. And you can think of different timescales. So you've got a daily timescale, for instance, intermittent fasting, you might have a one day water fast each week. Or if you're restricting diet composition, then that can be intermittent. So you could have a cyclical ketogenic diet in which you're on a very low carbohydrate diet, say six days each week, and then you have one day each week in which you consume substantially more carbohydrate. Time-restricted eating can also be intermittent. A lot of people will be quite strict on their non-work on their work days and then loosen up on non-work days. And then the other time scale is a longer one. For instance, taking diet breaks or refeeds yeah. can really help people sustain their progress over time you see this a lot in physique athletes yep. but there's a lot to learn for the rest of us too i think yeah 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 we actually had um professor amanda sablis on the podcast a couple of years ago and at our, also at our congress who 
has published some research on those those diet breaks where you go back to sort of 100% caloric intake for a couple of weeks to help with potentially the, the, the set point that's trying to fight back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of terms and buckets there. I, I, I might just take a step back um, because when I look at this list, there's like paleo and um, macronutrient restriction, then there's the uh, FMD, the Volta Longo um, protocols. Some There's a lot of different applications potentially for employing these diets from you know uh, glucose control to weight loss to even potentially um, helping with chemotherapy. Um, perhaps we might want to uh, focus in on some areas today. What, what, what do you know there's some of the, the main reasons why people are choosing some of these strategies? Is it mostly like for, for body composition, metabolic health? Yeah, I, I think it depends on the specific strategy. The reality is that in general, people are getting fatter and fatter over time. The worldwide prevalence of overweight and obesity is increasing. And while a lot of people can lose weight in the short term, many of them then regain the weight and then some. So I think the most common use of these different interventions is still for weight loss. With that said, there is a large number of people nowadays who are very interested in longevity. Mm. You see this in particular in the biohacking world. So my impression is that a lot of the worried well are also using these interventions for some of their purported health benefits, thinking that if they periodically do a fast or use a fasting mimicking diet or use some other form of restriction, they're going to have some positive effects on their biology, probably in large part by way of hormesis that makes them more resilient in the long term. Right. Okay, that's good. Yeah, it gives us a couple areas to, to focus on. Uh, yeah, so one of the, I think one of the themes that keeps going through my mind is does any of these sort of protocols, they naturally are hypercaloric over netting out over the long term, as I understand, uh, and that can uh, obviously accommodate weight loss. The question that keeps coming through my mind is, do these protocols have any benefit above and beyond the, the caloric restriction that they induce? And that's where some of the, the more recent researchers as compared like caloric restriction versus caloric restriction plus time restricted feeding. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we can use that as a bit of a, a launch pad to first look at some of the, the potential mechanisms um, on how is it a combination. Again, the way I'm framing it up is there's, there's two components that, it's um, eating at the right time and, and then having enough or and then there's the duration of a fast. So the, the, mm-hmm. the first point probably comes finally back to um, circadian rhythm. So mm. can you describe um, the theoretical mechanisms that can be beneficial from eating within your circadian rhythm? Yeah, absolutely. So one of these is if you use time-restricted eating, then you're going to have an adequate post-absorptive period each day, which means that you're going to reap some of the positive effects of fasting physiology. When you fast, there is a kind of switch that takes place. 
your metabolism shifts such that there's an increase in fat oxidation, there's an increase in ketones in the blood. And people think that you're also going to support some pro-longevity changes in various signaling pathways too. For instance, there might be reduced activity in some pro-aging pathways. People often focus on insulin, IGF-1 signaling, sometimes on mTOR signaling, but to add my own perspective on that, I think tissue specificity is really important. You don't want to drastically reduce signaling of those factors in skeletal muscle because you're just going to end up small and weak. There's also potentially an increase in activity in anti-aging pathways. And a lot of the research focuses on things like sirtuins, FOXO, and autophagy, which is basically a process of cell renewal that's characterized by getting rid of non-functional proteins or damaged and defective organelles and various pathogens. One of the issues here is that actually measuring autophagic flux is very hard to do in humans. Right. And my guess is also that you get stronger responses through some other interventions such as exercise than you do in, through diet, but that is speculative. Another of the mechanisms that might be at play is that, as you mentioned, you're aligning your food intake with when your circadian biology is best set for certain processes, digesting, metabolizing food, for instance. And the rationale here is that you have these cell autonomous clocks in cells throughout your body that regulate the timing of many processes. So fending off foodborne pathogens, taking up nutrients in the gut and other tissues, building new structures, breaking down damaged ones, etc. And while demonstrating this in humans is at times tricky to do, there are some convincing data that show some of this at play. So one of the examples that comes to mind is oral glucose tolerance is much higher in the biological morning than it is in the biological evening. And this has been known for decades, but one study that I particularly liked was done by Frank Shear and Chris Morris in 2015. And they found that glucose tolerance is about 17% higher in the biological morning than the evening. Right. And more recently, a meta-analysis has shown similar differences depending on time of day. And related to all of that, your postprandial responses to late meals aren't ideal. And one study I really like from a couple of years ago was done by Jonathan Jun. And he basically compared what happens when you have dinner five hours before bed to dinner one hour before bed. Unsurprisingly, they found that there was a shift in the postprandial period by about four hours, such that in that late condition, it overlapped with sleep. And if you look independent of that shift, then the postprandial responses to the late meal were such that glucose swung more in response to eating, the triglyceride peak was shifted later, there was less fat oxidation overnight. And while sleep wasn't dramatically affected, there was higher plasma cortisol during the sleep period, which is probably not a good thing. Yeah. And interestingly, all of those changes were particularly pronounced in quite early sleepers. So it could be that there's some chronotype dependent effect here. And then finally, the other thing that I mentioned is that if you have regular high amplitude eating fasting cycles, then you're going to support your circadian system function. The reason is that it seems that if you have food at certain times of day, then you entrain certain peripheral clocks in your body to anticipate food intake at those times. And 
the evidence of this in humans mostly comes from a study by some scientists at the University of Surrey five years ago, where they found that if you shift the timing of three standardized daily meals by five hours, then you also commensurately shift the blood glucose rhythm by a similar amount. And you also see a, a small change in the rhythm of expression of some clock genes and some peripheral tissues. And based on more recent work by Priya Crosby, it's likely that insulin signaling is particularly important to that type of food entrainment. The, the data on non-human animals more convincingly show that type of food-based entrainment. So my guess is that it is there. Okay. Uh, that's yeah, really fascinating. Can you just um, underscore that these, this idea of the, the cell specificity and it sounds like and, and clarify or expound these clock genes. So as I understand it, the, the cells have their own little sort of circadian rhythm and they switch, they turn on the gene and sort of a, that's the, the countdown to, um, I suppose, it takes 24 hours for that gene to then switch back off. And in that time, you get a peak in um, activity of certain um, proteins, hence why you tend to metabolise glucose or have better glucose tolerance in the morning as, a, as opposed to the afternoon. And this is... So my question is, can you just double um, expand on that? And is that linked to melatonin? So you've got the hormonal aspect as well. So you've got cells, clocks inside your cells, which sort of, do they run autonomously or they sync it up to, to melatonin? What's the mm. hormonal and the, the sort of the, the cell-specific um, transcript tome, if you want to call it that, um, synchronicity or is there one? Sure. So they do run autonomously. With that said, they do also respond to certain other signals, one of which is melatonin, which acts by way of two receptors to tell cells throughout your body that it's the biological nighttime and therefore to engage in appropriate activities for that time of day. In terms of how these clocks run, they're based on a, a series of transcriptional translational feedback loops and basically that there's a positive arm that comprises two clock gene proteins clock and bmal1 and these are transcription factors so they activate the transcription or expression of various different genes and they activate the transcription of the negative part of this feedback loop too. And those include two cryptochrome genes and three period genes. And these basically accumulate in the cytosol of the cell, and then they go back into the nucleus, and then they turn off that effect of the positive arm, so clock and BMAL1, on the transcription of other genes. And so that cycle repeats itself every 24 hours, resulting in these local changes in expression of many different genes. If you look at protein encoding genes in primates, then you see these rhythmic changes in gene transcription in something like 80% of genes. Yeah, right. They're really quite pervasive. And then you mentioned glucose metabolism. So with respect to that specifically, that is regulated by clocks in various different tissues. So for instance, the clock in your pancreas influences how much 
insulin is produced, the clocks in your skeletal muscles affect local insulin sensitivity, which is true of your liver too. And then within your liver, the clocks there also influence gluconeogenesis. And when those different clocks are running on time, in part because of appropriate melatonin signaling, you have better glucose control than you otherwise would do. And so using this information about circadian biology, you can optimize when you're consuming relatively large boluses of carbohydrate, such that you maintain more even blood sugar over the course of the day. And then over time that can support your health, protect you against diseases such as diabetes and Alzheimer's and so on. Fascinating. One other area I just want to touch upon before we look at the, the recent clinical trials, you mentioned earlier like the switch um, and some of the influences and maybe zealots. One of the impression I get is it's it's very sort of binary, like, you know, IGF one's bad, insulin's bad, autophagy's good, um, and it's all or nothing, like you're either eating or you don't. Um, but my sort of understanding of metabolism, it's more like dimmer switches, like, um, the body isn't like I think of the um, I'm probably showing my age, but the was it the um, bad horror film in the '80s, The Gremlins, where you can't feed the mogwais after the midnight. They they flip over to these horrible little gremlins, you know, at the stroke of midnight. Um, <laughs> our bodies, I don't think our bodies are that sort of binary that you know. Um, and this is where I think maybe you know, in context of its um, calories, is it's the amount as well. Um, it, you know, is there nuance to this about it's not just on or off, it's there's a spectrum here and that's why there may be, you know, a, a broader period where you can have, you know, calories sooner and so forth? Absolutely. I, I always think about metabolism in terms of those dimmer switches, like you mentioned. And I think when people start to use those types of binary divisions, you can you can run into problems and end up creating zealots when really that's counterproductive yeah all right um so let's see if the rubber or whether the rubber meets the road so we've got a good framework of the potential mechanisms there's been a, a long history of animal studies that have shown pretty remarkable results through time restricted feeding and so forth there's been some recent clinical trials and the most recent one was the the study in China, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine, the Lou study. Um, mm -hmm. I particularly like this one because um, they compared it with caloric restriction and both groups had caloric restriction, but one was within a, a feeding period uh, time. So can you um, take it from there and describe the study and the results? Yeah, of course. So what they did was they took 139 people, roughly half men, who have obesity and they split them into either early time restricted eating, which was eating only between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. with caloric restriction or just the caloric restriction for one year. And the diet in both instances comprised about 1,500 to 1,800 calories each day for men, 1,200 to 1,500 each day for women. And the main outcome they were interested in was the difference between the two groups in body weight change over the course of those 12 months. What they found was that most people completed the study. So about 85% of people, the average weight loss from baseline to the end of the study was eight kilos in the early time restricted eating group 
and 6.3 kilos in the caloric restriction group. And that wasn't a significantly different change between the two groups. So the p-value was 0.11. And just as an aside, in general, p-values between about 0.05 and 0.1 are often deemed to be trending or tending towards significance. So it's on the cusp of being significant. There were also no between group differences in changes in waist circumference, BMI, body fat, fat free mass, blood pressure, blood sugar control, insulin resistance, or blood lipids. And there weren't any differences between the groups in the numbers of adverse events either. In terms of my own perspective on this, I think in many ways it was a very well designed study. So those numbers of people in each group are much higher than most previous studies. It was also quite a long study. They had assessments of both six months and 12 months. A lot of previous studies of time-restricted eating had been 12 weeks or so. They used DEXA for body composition, which is considered by many to be one of the gold standard ways of assessing that. They used CT scans for visceral fat assessment, which is also definitely appropriate, etc. Interestingly, if you look at all the body composition data, with the exception of fat-free mass, numerically the changes were slightly better in the early time-restricted eating group. And the retention of those changes was also better at 12 months, by which I mean there was less movement of those variables towards baseline. And if you look at the individual's data, then the biggest responders were in the early time-restricted eating group. Yeah. Yeah. And that might be because time restricted eating per se has some effect. Right. And <clears throat> with that said, <laughs> I want to be really clear that what I just mentioned, namely that numerically those differences are bigger, those effects weren't statistically significant. I'm just saying that with a larger study with more numbers and therefore greater power, you might have seen some of those become significant. There are a few things to consider. So one is that at baseline, the people had quite short eating windows compared to a lot of us. And so it could be that a more restrictive intervention, so a shorter time-restricted eating period, might have driven some additional weight loss. And it could also be that time restriction interacts with energy availability such that its effects largely wash out if somebody's in an energy deficit. A couple more things. So one is that the adherence in the two groups was similar, which to me is really interesting because mm. when you think about caloric restriction, you're asking people to make one change, reduce calories. When you think about early time restricted eating plus caloric restriction, you're asking them to make two changes. So I would therefore have expected the latter to be more difficult to do, which didn't seem to be the case. And then finally, you've got to bear in mind that in this study, people received a lot of support. They had, co they had coaching throughout. And that's not like what many people would experience outside of a research setting. My guess is that because of its simplicity, getting people who don't have coaching to go through time-restricted eating might be more fruitful in a, in a more representative context of that in which a lot of us are trying to lose weight or implement time-restricted eating. 
Yeah, um, they, because they did achieve pretty impressive weight loss. It obviously was longer than other trials, um, but you're getting, you know, significant um, percentage reduction in body weight, which generally translates to pretty marked benefits in health. Um, I think the paper did dis- discuss how the behavioural um, component, the coaching, was probably one of the, uh, you know, an important key feature because mm-hmm. when we look at some other trials, we probably don't see as profound weight loss obviously over a shorter period of time. Um, yeah, do you have any comments on, I know you just discussed the behavioural, but is it worth just <laughs> underscoring that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that these people probably had more hand-holding than in other contexts. And if you look at studies, not of time restriction, but of restricting diet composition, then people have a really hard time with that if they aren't led by a coach. In part, I think, because they find it difficult to understand what's being asked of them. Mm. And so if you think about a clinical setting, say somebody turns up to their doctor and they're told that they're now obese and perhaps they're also pre-diabetic. If the doctor has 15 minutes with that person, just explaining time-restricted eating is very straightforward and people can probably actually go away and, and do that of their own accord. Whereas giving them an array of different diet composition advice related to reducing intake of certain foods and so on might be much more difficult without that support. With all of that said, it very much depends on the individual. Some people are, are very intrinsically motivated and they don't gain that much by having somebody else's input or being accountable to other people. Whereas other people benefit greatly from that type of external support. Yeah, well said. Um, and then you mentioned there that they showed that the waterfall plot of the individual responders, and yeah, there was some huge um, responders in the time-restricted feeding, but also in both groups, um, some put on um, some significant amount of weight as well. Yeah, and, and it's quite common to see that type of variation in individual responses. I'm actually just pulling up the plots in front of me now. And like you say, in both groups, a small number of people did gain some weight. But if you look at the individual data, then the three people who lost the most weight were all in the early time restricted eating group. And the people who gained the most weight were in the caloric restriction group. So again, (laughs) bear in mind that this is just us looking at individual data points and making conclusions from that. And you need to be statistically rigorous with these things. I, I believe that with a very large scale study, you would start to see some statistically significant differences. And unfortunately, this, this study is, is just a tiny bit too small to start to see those. And also just going back to what we were just saying, it could be that with less support through coaching, we would have seen some differences between the groups. Yeah. All right. Well, Let's touch upon a couple other studies. Uh, another one recently, I can't remember which country it was performed in, but it was the Thomas paper where um, maybe they had a bigger baseline. I was just thinking back to you mentioned, I didn't pick that up in the, um, the Lou study that they they really maybe had a pretty shortish um, baseline feeding period maybe to compare to us in the West. So mm. Thomas paper, um, 
short, bit, bit shorter in period, but pretty similar results. Can you touch upon some of the, the key points on the Thomas paper? Yeah, so this study was done in North America, it's Colorado, and it was smaller, so 81 people, the majority women, and again, relatively heavy individuals, so most of them were obese, and they were randomized to either early time restricted eating, so 10 hour eating window, starting within three hours of waking up. And just as an aside, I like the fact that they frame it relative to the sleep-wake cycle. We'll come back to that later. But I think too often people focus on the local clock time when mm. discussing these interventions. It makes much more sense to think about your diet timing relative to your own biology. And then <clears throat> in one group, the people were combining that with caloric restriction. And the other group, they weren't worried about time restriction. They were just using caloric restriction. And that caloric restriction was basically their resting energy expenditure minus 10%. Slightly short in the other studies that this was 39 weeks long and their main outcome was body weight at week 12. So over a shorter period and they took some secondary measures then too, and then reassessed body composition at week 39. Again, there was some coaching, but whereas in the Liu study, there was individual one-on-one coaching in this context, they were coached in groups. Once more, weight loss wasn't different between groups at week 12. So the early time restricted eating condition was a 6.2 kilo weight loss, whereas the caloric restriction one was 5.1 kilo weight loss or at week 39. So early time restricted eating was 4.9 and caloric restriction was 4.3 kilo weight loss. There also weren't any between group differences in changes in body composition, or diet adherence, once again, energy intake, physical activity, hemoglobin A1C or blood lipids at week 12. So <clears throat> what do we make of that? Well, I think, again, it's interesting that numerically the body comp changes were better in the early time restricted eating group numerically, both at week 12 and at week 39. So the results back up those of the New England Journal of Medicine study. One of the things that I found most interesting about this paper was that they looked at a, a composite healthy eating index and they found that that improved only in the time restricted eating condition. And we really need studies of how time restricted eating affects diet quality, because my guess is that in some people, these effects can be quite profound. Mm. If you're asking people to implement early time restricted eating, then you're going to selectively reduce their intake of certain foods, given that most of us consume individual items in a somewhat time of day dependent way. Most people, if they eat cereal, they have it in the morning. If they drink alcohol, they have it late in the day. And if you look at diet quality over the course of the day, then I think it generally declines. And that's yeah. really one way by which early time restricted eating is beneficial. Other comments. One is that <clears throat> there were quite a lot of missing data in this study. So about a third of people had missing body composition data, blood lipid data, A1C data, and energy expenditure data at week 12 because of a COVID lockdown. So it's unfortunate, but that's true of so many studies of the last couple of years. And that also interfered with how they looked at body weight over time. A lot of people had to weigh themselves at home and send them photos of their weighing scales instead of being weighed at the study center. Another thing that was interesting was that Adherence was again similar, despite the fact that the time restricted eating condition is actually asking more of the people. So once again, 
this type of intervention seems to be feasible. One thing they noted was that people struggled to do both time restriction and caloric restriction the first few weeks. Right. And given that, they suggest that people just focus on time-restricted eating at that time. But they found that eventually people could do it with no problem. And related to what I just said, they also found that it was easier to meet the time-restricted eating target, so the goal-eating window, than it was the calorie restriction one, which I think has relevance to how practical these diets are. Mm. And then also related to (laughs) what I mentioned earlier, the caloric restriction led to a reduction in their eating window. So in the caloric restriction group, their eating window fell from just over 11 hours to about 10 and a half hours. So if you look at the difference in eating window between the two groups, it wasn't particularly big. And they might therefore have found some slightly larger effects if they, say, enforced an eight-hour eating window rather than a 10-hour one. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, it makes me think um, when you describe it like that um, with some of the other dietary strategies, which I've probably been personally critical of, like the you know keto and low carb, um, more the the mechanisms and so forth. Even paleo, um, whilst you know technically it's probably majority benefits through a caloric restriction, but from a, a practical point of view, maybe it's the like around the instructions. You know, uh, low carb is sort of easy to understand you just avoid these foods or paleo avoid those foods and same so too with the time restricted feeding it's it's really simple instructions isn't it like don't eat outside this this time period um and that tends to clean up the diet as well or but we've also seen similarly if you cut your calories you tend to sort of reduce your time frame as well so there's probably yeah um inherent properties or benefits um from whatever strategy because it, it does impose some restrictions Jimmy. Thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you need to bear in mind that these types of restriction are probably good for different things. And so if you improve your diet composition by implementing a paleo diet, that's probably going to be good for your micronutrient status. Whereas time restriction probably isn't going to help with that as much. On the other hand, if you improve your diet composition, then you are going to probably affect your peripheral clock function too. Some scientists have looked at specific nutrients, things like certain saturated fatty acids and their effects on the expression of clock genes in certain cells, finding some positive effects for some things and some negative effects for others. I think in general, time-restricted eating is going to have a stronger effect on peripheral clock function than, say, changing diet composition by implementing a paleo diet. So Mm. bear that in mind. And then also consider that these different interventions interact too. And it might be that for a lot of people, if they switch to the paleo diet, because it has such a large proportion of highly satiating foods, they inadvertently restrict their caloric period also. And then going back to what I mentioned, it might be that, by implementing time-restricted eating, you also improve your diet composition. So all these different things interact and they're likely to be important for different things. And based on that, I think ultimately a combination of these different approaches makes the most sense. But when selecting interventions, you want to pick things that are likely to be 
doable first, effective, positively transfer to other health behaviors. And that's one of the things I like so much about time-restricted eating. People can stick to it. It works. And it probably slightly improves diet composition, sleep too. The data on different forms of fasting and time restriction and sleep aren't so far convincing, but I think that's in large part because of floor effects. The studies that have looked at sleep have taken people who already have quite good sleep at baseline and then asked them to implement these changes to their diet timing. And unsurprisingly, their sleep doesn't get better because their sleep's fine at the start. Whereas I think if you took people with certain sleep issues, so say that somebody has really severe obstructive sleep apnea because they're very heavy and they lose eight kilos through time-restricted eating over the course of a year, wouldn't surprise me at all if their apnea hypopnea index improved as a result of that weight loss, for instance. Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Some people suffer terribly with chronic inflammation, despite using over-the-counter medications, heat packs and topical applications. This was the case for Charlie, a 57-year-old with an inflammatory condition which affected his hips, knees and neck. He told his practitioner the discomfort was making his life miserable. In order to help Charlie, his practitioner recommended specialised pro-resolving mediators. Within two weeks, he had noticed some improvement, but by week 10, he reported he almost felt normal again. And at week 12, he told his practitioner he was no longer relying on heat packs and topical applications. A great result for Charlie. To learn more about specialised pro-resolving mediators, visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now, back to the podcast. Now, I want to uh, move on slightly to within that time that people are eating is how you distribute your calories. And probably the, the easiest way to describe this is the, is the old adage about breakfast like a king, uh, lunch like a prince, and dinner like a pauper. Um, there's been some studies on how we how the calories are distributed through the day. Can you describe some of these studies and, and the rationale behind these? Yeah, of course. The rationale relates in part to what we were discussing earlier. So namely that our bodies are best set to digest and metabolize nutrients at certain times of day. And in general, that entails front-loading food intake over the course of the waking day. That's probably especially true of carbohydrate intake based on what I mentioned earlier with respect to glycemic control. Right. Yeah. And when you look at the distribution of energy intake, you can modify this in a few different ways. Obviously, by using something like early time restricted eating, you're automatically doing that. And so we could look at some of those studies. And there are actually quite a few of those early time restricted eating studies. The first one that I'm aware of in humans was done in 2014 by Hannah Kaliova, who's at Prague. And it wasn't labeled at the time as a study of early time restricted eating. She was really ahead of the curve, but it was. And they basically took overweight and obese adults with diabetes and they put them on a, a weight loss diet, either comprising six meals a day or two meals a day, which was just breakfast and lunch each for 12 weeks. And their macronutrition was the same. So same calories, carbohydrate, yeah. protein, fat, and so on. They basically found that that two meal a day, so the breakfast and lunch intervention, led to greater improvements in body weight, insulin sensitivity, fasting blood sugar, and liver fat too. The results are quite striking. 
more recently, there's been a succession of studies by Courtney Peterson and her colleagues at Pennington. They did a really nice study in 2018 looking at men with prediabetes. And in this study, they specifically made sure that people maintain their body weight. I think if memory serves, they actually had to increase their food intake because people were tending to lose body weight. But they designed it such that after implementing early time restricted eating for five weeks, they maintained their body weight. But despite that, again, insulin sensitivity improved, blood pressure dropped by quite a lot. The effect size was comparable to the effects of hypotensive drugs. And they also found that some markers of oxidative stress and appetite improved too. And they've looked more recently at short-term interventions, basically finding that just four days or so of early time restricted eating led to improved blood sugar control, more even appetite control too. They found some changes in substrate oxidation such that there was greater fat oxidation, higher blood levels of ketones in the morning, which suggests to me that if you're on a ketogenic diet for some reason and you're struggling to enter a state of ketosis, then this type of early time restricted eating approach might be quite helpful for you. And then the, the most interesting study to me on early time restricted eating of late was done by some scientists in Beijing. And that was just published this year. But they basically took healthy, non-obese young adults and they put them into one of three groups for five weeks. So they had an early time restricted eating group, which was finishing by 3 p.m. They had a, a midday time restricted eating group, which was finishing by 8 p.m. Or they had controls, which was just not using any time restriction, eating whenever they like. And they compared their measurements at week five to baseline. They basically found that in these healthy young people, early time restricted eating led to a bunch of different health improvements. Weight loss, less fat mass, improved fasting blood sugar, improved insulin sensitivity. They also found that the early time restricted eating slightly lowered some markers of inflammation and appeared to increase the diversity of the gut microbiota. So again, they're not asking people to implement caloric restriction. These people are quite healthy, but they're still experiencing some benefits. Mm -hmm. And then the other category of studies is not early time restricted eating, but instead spreading out food intake through the day, but just consuming a lot of that at breakfast, like you mentioned, Nathan. And some of the studies that I like most on this have been done by Danielle Yakubovics. I speak a lot on podcasts and I never know how to pronounce her name. So <laughs> I, I need to meet her one day and apologize in person for just <laughs> butchering her name every time. But in 2013, they published a, a nice study, which was a 12-week weight loss study in women. And they basically had one group consume half their calories at breakfast and the other half their calories at dinner. And they found that both groups improved. So the late eaters lost 4% of their body weight and they also lost 3% off their waistlines. The early eaters had greater improvements. They lost 11% of their body weight and they lost 8% off their waistlines as well as having greater improvements in their blood sugar and blood lipids. They've published work more recently looking at people with some other cardiometabolic health issues. And one of the studies that I like most was published in 2019. And they basically had people divided into either three meals a day with a big breakfast 
or six meals with a small breakfast for 12 weeks. And all of these adults had type two diabetes and they found that only that big breakfast, three meal condition led to weight loss. They lost over five kilos. They also found that fasting blood sugar, average daily blood sugar, blood sugar during the sleep period was lower in the three meal condition. And as a result of those improvements in blood sugar control, the, the time spent in the healthy range of blood sugar had increased 83% by the end of 12 weeks. They used continuous glucose monitoring to look at that. And also quite a few of the patients dramatically reduced their use of blood sugar lowering medication too. So really impressive results. But with that said, I know one of the studies that you fired over to me, Nathan, was done by Suzanne Lafleur. He's a really good chronobiologist. She's based in Holland. And they had obese, insulin-resistant men follow a low-calorie diet for four weeks while half their breakfast, at, half their daily calories at breakfast or half at dinner, and they found no differences between groups. So both lost a similar amount of weight, which was an impressive amount of weight, about 6.5% of their weight loss. But there weren't any differences in insulin sensitivity or liver fat or substrate metabolism. So it's not like the big breakfast condition was worse. It just yeah. wasn't different. And I think yeah. we need to bear that in mind with all of the studies that we mentioned so far. If you look at front-loading energy intake or early time restricted eating, in no instances is it worse. It's either better or equivalent. And given that people seem to find it as easy to implement, if you have poor cardiometabolic health, it seems to me to be a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem any harm in, in doing it. And the overall body of evidence suggests there is benefit. So darn science always gets um, in the way of a nice, clean story, but <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> more as we um, unfold. All right, so you've talked about a circadian um, type of or restriction over a 24-hour period. Now I just want to... Uh, pivot or extend to, to longer periods a couple more to go through there's obviously a bit of a list here but um you mentioned earlier popularized by mosley over in your area or the the 5-2 diet there's been a fair bit of research on that um does that do you have a sort of framework does the circadian rhythm come into it now when you're having these all-day fasts and um, two non-consecutive days in a week how do you sort of look at this or is this the a way of promoting fasting and general caloric restriction? I think it's the latter more than anything. Yeah. But go, going back to what I was saying about the fact that you can implement these different things concurrently, if you're using a modified 5-2 diet, so on two days each week you are consuming, say, 500 calories, you could use an early time-restricted eating approach on those two days, and that way you might experience some benefits to your circadian system function, assuming that you're also using time restriction on those other five days each week. So certainly that could be the case, but in general studies that use this type of approach don't enforce diet timing recommendations. And if you look at the research on, on both the five, two diet and alternate day fasting, which are sometimes lumped together, then unsurprisingly they they can both be helpful for weight loss but if you compare them to so-called continuous energy restriction 
in which you're just maintaining a, a small calorie deficit each day. To be honest, the effects don't seem to be very different. There was a, a nice systematic review by Ariana Chow, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, just recently, and they looked at lots of different RCTs of intermittent energy restriction. And they found that in the short term, which they defined as being, I think, less than 24 weeks, the majority of the studies less to, led to some weight loss. And some of that weight loss was retained in the long term too. But comparing those effects to continuous energy restriction, there wasn't really a difference. And the same was true for longer studies that they looked at. And related to that particular systematic review, there were meta-analyses in 2018 finding exactly the same thing. So I think it's just an alternative approach and it really depends on how you want to go about this if you are trying to lose weight. Yeah. So uh, I'm always curious. I think I've seen some data on compliance. Um, Full disclosure, I I couldn't do this to save my life. I don't think like Mm. all these, you know, especially alternate day fasting. But I speak to some people and it seems to be really easy for them to do once they get in the zone and they they forget about food and um, can get through the day and feel more energetic. Have you got any sense on compliance and um, or attrition? I thought I'd saw something where people had administered this over a long period of time just tend to sort of drift towards a general daily caloric restriction, but I could be wrong. Any any thoughts on compliance? Yeah, I, I think it's likely to be worse than time-restricted eating. And in general, studies of time-restricted eating find that about 85% of people can stick to it over time. I think for for these types of approaches, you're looking at something closer to 50%, maybe not as low as 50%, but closer to that. And one thing to mention is that if you are using these fasting or modified fasting days, then you need to think about when you're doing them each week. And my experience is that people find it much easier to implement these fasting days on weekdays or work days than they do on weekends. And so if, if you give it a go, just bear that in mind. So, yeah, I, I think it is hard to, to do something like alternate day fasting. I, like you, Nathan, would find it very difficult. <laughs> and based on that, sometimes modified alternate day fasting makes more sense. But I, I think that can still be quite difficult. And also some people find that going about things in a relatively black and white way is helpful for them. They'd rather not have anything to eat at all than have 500 calories each day. I suspect that if I gave this a go, I'd actually rather just do a water only fast on those days than to consume the 500 calories. Yeah. And another thing, of course, is that flip-flopping that you go through on alternate day fasting between eating and fasting. For me, again, just thinking about this as an individual, I think I I might find it easy to string together consecutive days of Uh fasting rather than switching back and forth between fasting and eating. It would feel like there's a lot of inertia each time you transition back to fasting or modified fasting. And certainly if you're very heavy at the start, then you can go a long period without consuming anything other than water and maybe eventually some vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids. And famously, I'm sure you've come across this study, Nathan, but there was a, a paper on a Scottish man, Angus yep. Barbieri, 
he did a, a medically supervised fast for over a year and his weight fell by 125 kilos and his health improved dramatically in many ways. So bear that in mind if, if you are very heavy and also bear in mind that the proportion of weight that you lose as fat mass will be higher if you're very heavy at baseline. So a lot of people are concerned about losing fat-free mass if they're having yeah, to start out. And I think it's much less of a concern than if, say, you're a physique athlete and you're starting your competition diet at 15% body fat. Yeah, yeah. For you, losing weight more slowly is going to make a lot more sense and those types of extended fasts are likely counterproductive. Yeah. All right. Uh, on to the next one. Um, the This has got a, a slight difference to it, as I understand, with the, the fasting mimicking diet, um, as you mentioned, pioneered by Volta Longo, I think, in and around originally for, like, chemotherapy to reduce side effects and maybe increase efficacy. Um, so there's a couple parts. Can you describe it? And also, is there a piece around with the – during the sort of the – quasi-fast, there's a specific reduction in amino acids. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't got into like macronutrient, you know, signaling. Um, I don't know if we're going to go into that deep, but there is a bit of nuance to this one. So can you describe that and maybe touch upon why there's um, restriction of certain macronutrients? Yeah, of course. So the the human version of fasting mimicking diet is a five-day, very low-calorie, low-carb, low-protein diet. And it's available via the company Prolon, which is Volta Longo's company. I believe that he will be giving all of his shares away and he doesn't personally profit from it and instead uses profits to fund some of his own research, which I think is is really admirable. So, mm. so good on him. And the idea is that by implementing this diet, you get many of the benefits of a fast while still getting some food. And it's basically a vegetarian meal box, which is made up of soups, some snacks. So there are bars, olives, and crackers in there, some drinks, which are teas and low calorie drinks, multivitamin, multimineral, and an omega-3 supplement, which is based on algae. And if you look at the individual ingredients of the products, and I do that kind of thing because I'm a nerd, (laughs) the main ingredients are basically rice flour, inulin, which is a a prebiotic to most people, according to the prebiotic definition, pulses, olive oil, nuts, seeds, some vegetable powders, some herbs, and some spices. The mouse fasting mimicking diet, which is what a lot of the research has looked at so far, is different. That's an important consideration. And I think one of the core issues with the translatability of a lot of preclinical research is that many of the diets used just aren't species appropriate and based on that it's no surprise that when you give these animals less of these foods or you use time restriction they experience health benefits because they're just eating less of the rubbish which is bad for them in the first place yeah now with that said they've done a few preclinical and clinical studies on fasting mimicking diet so in mice they've used cycles of fasting mimicking diets and have shown that the mice can experience benefits in models of type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, 
the diet might reduce some of the symptoms associated with autoimmune diseases. Like you mentioned, they've looked at cancer too and found that it can reduce the incidence and progression of a few different types of tumors. And they've also done some work on longevity, which suggests that this type of diet might help extend lifespan. In humans, they've published a few pilot studies and these fasting mimicking diet cycles can reduce body weight, total and LDL cholesterol, some markers of inflammation. They've also looked at breast cancer patients and found that using this diet around chemotherapy might improve some responses to the chemotherapy. So there are these interesting pilot studies too. And I know, Nathan, you sent me this paper by some Iranian scientists. I don't know if you want me to touch on that, but I'll pause there. Uh, can you pronounce their name? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can spell it, which is S-A-D-E-G-H-I-A-N. So I guess that's Sadeghian or Sadeghian. But basically, <laughs> that was a, a study that came out last year. And I, I quickly read this paper yesterday. And, and frankly, I have a few bones to pick with it. I need to read it more closely. But I found some of it a bit odd. It was an RCT of 60 women who have obesity. And they were split into either a fasting mimicking diet group. So five days of that diet, once a month for two months or continuous energy restriction, target a daily energy deficit of 500 calories. And they took measurements at baseline and then again at the end. And they found if you compare the two different groups, there wasn't a difference in weight loss between them. So the mean weight change for the continuous restriction was, was 2.3 kilos. And for the fasting mimicking diet is 1.1, which approached statistical significance. So p-value is 0.06, although they didn't actually mention that. Yeah. Interestingly, they, they claim that basal metabolic rate fell more in the continuous energy restriction group and that the fasting mimicking diet aided fat loss and helped with fat-free mass retention. But <laughs> their metabolic rate data and body composition data are based on an analysis using discontinued bioelectrical impedance analysis scales, yeah. which, are, which are frankly pretty pants because they're, they're so prone to errors because yeah. even subtle changes in hydration can dramatically affect their estimates. And the, the abstract also notes that if you look at the data controlling for confounders, then the continuous energy restriction increased the erectogenical food intake promoting hormones, ghrelin and neuropeptide Y, but you can't really understand why they adjusted for anything if their randomization balanced their groups. And if you look at the unadjusted data, then neuropeptide Y didn't budge in either group. So there were just a few things in the paper that made me scratch right. my head. Okay. So still probably more work needed here. Um, but at this stage, yeah, what's your take on, on uh, fasting mimicking diet? Do you think it, there is application and again like um is it worth the effort yeah so i have a few health obsessed friends who've tried it and enjoyed it and my perspective is that it it might be helpful for some people but i also think that we should be able to improve on the fasting mimicking diet 
my reservations about it relate, I think in part, if I'm being honest, to, to some of Walter Longo's research and opinions on things. And, and I, I want to be clear that I, I don't mean to throw him under the bus or be a contrarian or anything like that. But just as a case in point, and you mentioned this earlier, Nathan, he, he advocates a low protein diet. My impression is that that's based largely on bad epidemiology right. and some mechanistic studies of rodents. And to summarize the results of those papers, that they infer from their findings that protein intake contributes to aging and cancer. But I'd much rather look at well-done studies of humans, including RCTs. And when you think about protein intake, it's, it's really, really helpful. So higher protein intakes reduce food intake. When you've got an obesity and overweight epidemic, that's helpful. They help build fat-free mass and musculoskeletal strength. Both of those are really important, both given that rise in obesity and the fact that we have an aging population. When you think about metabolic health, muscle tissue is, is the biggest contributor to energy expenditure each day. It's also the biggest bodily sink that you have in which to, to pour the glucose that you consume and it therefore protects against diabetes. And then there's the fact that sarcopenia, which is the, the loss of fat-free mass generally with aging, and dynopenia, which is the weakness that accompanies that, both associate with increased risk of falls, loss of independence, and ultimately death. Having a strong musculoskeletal system is really, really important. So the the push for people to reduce their protein intake, I think is entirely misguided. And personally, I'd, I'd love to compare the fasting mimicking diet to an alternative to look at ways to improve it. So for instance, if you imagine a, an early time restricted protein sparing modified fast that includes some specific foods and supplements that have proven health benefits. And there are lots of those, but you could look at things like lean meat, whey protein, berries, cruciferous vegetables, flavanol-rich cocoa, possibly some magnesium supplementation, some fish oil supplementation, put those head to head. Mm. Maybe in the short term, you wouldn't see differences. I don't know, but I, I think given that we don't know much about the development of that dietary approach, and it's not as if somebody has systematically tried to improve on it, I assume that there's some room for improvement. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you touched upon all that, particularly the protein. Um, I did have some, yeah, obviously some questions around that. So thank you for, yeah, it's all about trade-offs, um, I think, which really leads to the last area, which is just a bit of a summary and and looking at all these um, benefits and trade-offs of all these restrictions. Um, so as we, yeah, I think we've touched upon some of these throughout, but like obviously the benefits of time restricted, if we go back to time restricted feeding now, it's, really simple instructions um all you need is a clock really um <laughs> you don't need too many um, detailed complex instructions there i just want to touch upon some of the the costs i suppose um you know particularly in this day and age that we're less and less connected um family meal time and just socializing and eating it you know particularly at night we mm -hmm. tend to probably connect with our family and friends at night time um a little bit hard to do, if, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon if that's mm. your, your your last your last um, meal. So, yeah, what are some of the the the, the trade offs or the costs of this on time restricted feeding? 
just to throw it in the mix, I think there are some other groups of people who are likely to benefit that we haven't mentioned. So just to yeah. Qu- yeah, quickly I, mention yeah. one of those. Yeah. I think shift workers yes, are, yes. are likely to experience some benefits. And, and Frank Shear has published some nice work on this recently, looking at blood sugar control during simulated shift work, comparing either nighttime restricted or daytime restricted eating, finding that when they used daytime restricted eating, there was less misalignment between circadian rhythms and improved blood sugar control in association with that. So given the circadian disruption these people regularly experience and the fact that time-restricted eating might help consolidate some circadian rhythms, time-restricted eating is bound to be helpful for shift workers. But moving now to your actual question, Nathan, I think there are a few different barriers. So one is whether time-restricted eating fits with work schedules. Another, which is really important, as you mentioned, is family and eating occasions. I think meals are often the main way by which some families get together and enjoy each other's company. And if you're a mother and you're trying early time restricted eating and you're sat around the dinner table drinking tea while all of your family is eating, I don't know that you're setting a good example necessarily. I I don't mean to sound judgmental, but Mm. certainly I I think we're going to struggle to sustain that over time. And then also there are social events, many of which take place in the evening. And if you're diligently sticking to your early time restricted eating schedule and are therefore awkward in those social settings, then you've got to ask whether that's worth it. Yeah. Another tricky aspect of these types of schedules, at least on paper, is that there seems to be a circadian rhythm and appetite, which makes it low in the morning and high in the evening for a lot of people. Right. With that said, if you look at Courtney Peterson's data, then counterintuitively, early time restricted eating makes appetite more even keeled over the course of the day. So I don't know that that's actually a problem once you're past the first few days okay. of early time restricted eating and you've entrained some of those rhythms in appetite that you have. I think another potential issue relates to exercise and I'm, I'm very interested in the subject of so-called chrono exercise chronobiologists just love sticking chrono on the start of <laughs> any word you could think of right. <laughs> but Raphael Nyer who's at Harvard published a meta-analysis last year showing that exercise performance is highest in the afternoon and evening in all the types of exercise they looked at so endurance exercise strength exercise power exercise and the largest effects are on maximal power so things like cycling sprints and vertical jumping but when you exercise you produce lots of metabolic changes that improve your metabolic response to eating so there's an increase in non-insulin mediated glucose uptake to skeletal muscles there's increased muscle protein synthesis and so on so if you're aligning your exercise with the time of day at which your exercise performance is highest, so say that you're training in the gym after work at 5.30 p.m., and you want to maximize your adaptations to that exercise by consuming plenty of nutrients around it, then early time restricted eating doesn't really jive with that. So factor in exercise when you're deciding on an eating schedule that's appropriate for you. And then I also think... There are are definitely some groups of people for whom time-restricted eating 
then early time restricted eating specifically might not be ideal. So I'm thinking of kids, pregnant or lactating women. We just don't have safety data in those people. To be honest, my guess is that it's absolutely fine for them. But without those data, I'm not at all comfortable recommending it. Yeah, I think people with a history of binge eating might struggle with time restricted eating because you might find that you can do the fasting bit and then when you start eating, the wheels fall off. Yeah, okay. And you just end up consuming a huge amount of food in a short period. I think people who are trying to, to gain weight or build muscle as fast as possible probably don't want to use time-restricted eating. Grant Tinsley's done some really nice work looking at time-restricted eating in conjunction with resistance training and has, has basically found that the effects on body composition are quite similar and the effects on exercise performance are quite similar too. But if anything, people tend to eat a bit less, lose a bit of fat mass when they use time-restricted eating. And in conjunction with that, you also see probably small declines in testosterone and IGF-1, certainly at least in men. And related to that, I think if you're prone to low energy availability, which is true of a lot of athletes who do very large volumes of physical activity, then it might not be for you. So if you're underweight, or if you have quite low fat-free mass, which is true of lots of elderly people, I probably wouldn't go with time-restricted eating. And then finally, if you have some sort of reproductive dysfunction and you're relatively lean, given those effects on sex hormones, it's probably not for you. The corollary of that is that if you have obesity, then it could be that time-restricted eating helps with weight loss and that could improve your reproductive function. Similarly, if you have PCOS and that relates to poor blood sugar control, then by using time-restricted eating, you might improve your glucoregulation and thereby improve your fertility too. So just got to bear those nuances in mind. Yeah. Yeah, well said. It's great to outline all those. Um, I was just curious, one of the criticisms of someone I was reading her, I think is pretty aggressive and probably really um, conservative in their views, but they did make a good point around um, the effect size of these interventions, as we discussed earlier. I think that, as we mentioned, the loop paper, we saw pretty significant um, weight loss, but particularly in overweight and obese patients, they to get a lot of the benefits, they need to achieve 10, 15, 20% weight loss and um, to date, the best strategies that seem sustainable are um, bariatric surgery and these now emerging, these GLP-1 agonists, which I had um, Stephen Guillenay on here recently discussing. Um, they're becoming, seem to become, or will be next blockbusters potentially. Mm. Um, so what's your, and what, what I did have noticed in some of the anecdotes of the GLP-1 agonists is, again, similar to what you said earlier, um, these people naturally tend to change their diet preferences. And I wonder even, um, you know, that hedonic eating um, diminishes dramatically. I wonder if they naturally tend to shrink their eating window. So just mm. thought, how does, yeah, any thoughts on how these compare to these um, other interventions? Yeah, that's really interesting what you just mentioned there. I haven't spent enough time looking at things like semaglutide, but I do know that gastrointestinal side effects are really common with those GLP-1 agonists. Yeah. And that that might have some bearing on (laughs) food intake too. But yeah, the the effect sizes are different, of course. So if if you look at the studies of 
early time restricted eating plus caloric restriction that we mentioned. As far as diet studies go, they're quite effective. But if you don't enforce caloric restriction with early time restriction, then in general, the studies of time restricted eating that don't specify caloric restriction have found that people lose probably something like one to 4% of their body weight over the space of eight to 26 weeks. That there was a meta-analysis published by Shinji Moon from Korea a couple of years ago that found that time restricted eating does consistently reduce body weight. Again, the average difference is quite small. It also reduces fat mass and helps preserve fat-free mass. But based on everything that we've discussed so far, I think it's possible to improve on those effect sizes. Mm. Now, comparing that to something like weight loss surgery or GLP-1 agonists, we're talking about very different effect sizes. So there was a recent meta-analysis that looked at surgery on weight loss in people with what sometimes called morbid obesity or sometimes called type three obesity, but they found that Ruan Y surgery had the biggest effects and led to an average fat loss of about 26 kilos and an average fat free mass loss of about eight kilos over the course of, of a year plus, which is very impressive. Obviously these people are very heavy to start with, but mm. those results differ dramatically from diets that have been studied to date, maybe outside of medically supervised liquid diets or, or yeah. supervised fasting. With respect to the GLP-1 agonists, again, the effects are more impressive than diet interventions. And th- there are different GLP-1 agonists, so it seems a bit crude to lump them all in the same category. But there was a, another meta-analysis published recently by some scientists in China And they found that on average, people lost about seven kilos of body weight, which isn't too dissimilar from those early time restricted eating plus caloric restriction studies I mentioned earlier, and had some favorable cardiometabolic effects too. But importantly, the effects are probably bigger for semaglutide than they are for liraglutide. So these more recent GLP-1 agonists are probably better than their predecessors. And there are the well-known STEP trials that have looked at semaglutide in series using different interventions and and found quite remarkable weight loss. So the step one trial, I think found that people lost about 15% of their body weight after 68 weeks. So that's why a year and nearly four months. However, they also lost a lot of fat free mass Mm. and you have to bear in mind body composition changes with these different things too. And circling back to what I mentioned Previously, it's possible to combine these different things in a way that makes a lot of sense. And I think you wanted to, to get to this anyway, Nathan. So I'll just I'll just carry on this yeah, train sure. of thought. But if if you combine some of those different dietary interventions that we've mentioned with say resistance training to hold on to your fat-free mass with adequate protein to provide some building blocks for skeletal muscle protein and bone remodeling with sleep extension to help you stick to the plan you're trying to implement and realize the benefits of the other interventions, then I I think you're likely to experience the greatest benefits. And obviously you can do all of those in conjunction with something like bariatric surgery or GLP-1 agonist use if it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. It's not one or the other. They're not... um... Yeah, you can combine. 
Um, I might just quickly touch upon, I think there's been some research recently, this is a question without notice, you mentioned the sleep extension. Mm. Um, so, yeah, as I understand it, obviously when you're sleep restricted, you tend to maybe consume up to 300 extra calories a day and it's typically those sort of um, fat and carbohydrate combinations. So has there been some recent updates on extending sleep and regulating appetite and even ultimately losing body fat? Yeah, I think the effects are probably quite modest. Yeah. But the thing about sleep enhancement is that its effects are so wide-ranging. We focus mostly on body composition uh, and a little bit on things like blood sugar control. But it also improves brain function and the list just goes on. So anyway, if, if you take people who habitually restrict their sleep, then extending their sleep by getting them to spend more time in bed does seem to slightly reduce food intake and body weight. And the, the best study on this was published very recently by Ezra Tassali. And they took 80 overweight young adults who habitually slept less than six and a half hours per night. And they either had those people carry on their sleep as normal or extend their sleep. And in the sleep extension group, they aimed to spend at least eight and a half hours each night in bed. And they guided them through that process individually. They only looked at this intervention for two weeks, but they found that whereas the sleep extension group increased their sleep duration by just over an hour and increased their, well, they basically ended up losing a bit of weight. So they lost about half a kilo and obviously that was driven by changes in their nutrition. They probably ended up consuming something like 150 fewer calories each day. The control group actually increased their energy intake by about 115 calories each day and gained a bit of weight. Mm. So about 0.4 kilos. And that doesn't sound like that much, but if you add up those effects over years, then you could be talking about quite meaningful effects on body composition over time. So that combination of sleep enhancement and dietary interventions and exercise interventions and so on is bound to be better than any one of those alone. Yeah. All right. So you've covered all the territory today and you've given some practical suggestions throughout. Just wanted to double check. Any, any other sort of recommendations on how to implement this or anything we've missed around time feeding? Yeah. So boys got recommendations <laughs> so if we if we if we start with time restricted eating then bear in mind it's, it's most likely to be helpful if your eating window at baseline is quite long for a lot of people it's north of 14 hours if your eating window is already 10 hours then you're probably not going to experience many benefits through implementing time restricted eating it's also more likely to be helpful if your cardiometabolic health is suboptimal. If you're going to use it, then I think a six to 12 hour eating window works well for most people. The thing about the shorter windows, and some studies have looked at things like four to six hour ones, is that they're more likely to produce side effects such as headaches. The sweet spot for a lot of people is probably eight to 10 hours. It's probably best to choose that window based largely on your baseline eating habits and your goals too. So if you're trying to lose weight, then maybe you favor a six to 10 hour window. Whereas if you're trying to maintain it or gain it, then maybe 10 to 12 hours is better. And related to that study 
by Elizabeth Thomas. I think if your goal is to lose weight, then maybe focus on time restriction first and then changes to your diet composition after that. If you're on a ketogenic diet, I think a, a longer fasting period might also make some sense. So maybe favoring the lower end of that range. And in general, an earlier eating window is preferable, especially if you're sedentary, but it might be difficult to do and you should factor in your exercise training too. If you're going to use fasting, then say you're using water fasting, I think you could start with one fast every seven days or so, and then you could increase the frequency of that fast over time until you find a sweet spot for you. Unless you're undergoing medical supervision, I probably wouldn't personally do more than about 48 hours of fasting each week. If you're using modified fasting, so say you're consuming 500 calories on those low calorie days, I think an early time restricted protein sparing modified fast is likely to be helpful. I would also make that high in fiber. I think food processing certainly matters too. Kevin Hall's published some great work on that. I know that we've gone back and forth briefly about that previously, mm. Nathan, but basically if you control for things like energy density and macronutrition, then food processing per se does matter such that people tend to consume more and and have a higher body weight if they consume processed food. And then if you want to try the fasting mimicking diet, you can give that a go. You can find it on the Prolon website. And then there are a few other things that I think apply to any diet that you follow. And these are, these are based on the science of chrononutrition. So first, think about your timing relative to your biological timing, not the clock on the wall. And so I generally describe these things in terms of when you're eating relative to your natural sleep-wake cycle, because we don't have a, a much better, more practical measure of your biological timing than your sleep-wake cycle. It's not like you can measure your melatonin in a straightforward way. Mm. I think it's best to not consume anything other than water until at least 30 minutes after you've naturally woken up each day. I say naturally woken up because a lot of people still wake to alarm clocks. I think that's especially important if you get woken up during your biological night. So if you say you have to wake very early in the morning to catch a flight or go to work or whatever. If you start eating relatively soon after waking, then it, it could be best to save your first caffeinated drink until after your first meal or snack. It could be that this is only true if you haven't slept well or if your metabolic regulation isn't ideal. But the reason I say that is James Betts from the University of Bath published some really interesting work a couple of years ago in which they woke people up for five minutes every hour at night in one condition and in another they just had them sleep normally. And they found that while that didn't really affect their oral glucose tolerance the next morning, if they gave them a coffee containing about 300 milligrams of caffeine, which is a pretty strong coffee, mm. then their, their peak blood sugar and insulin responses to the glucose tolerance test were worse if they had the coffee before the first meal. So if your blood sugar control isn't great, then you might just want to wait for that coffee until after your breakfast. But obviously, at the same time, you don't want to have caffeine too late in the day because that can delay your body's clock and also worse in your sleep quality. So certainly finish that by 
at least eight hours before sleep. There are huge differences between people and how they metabolize caffeine, but I think that's a good starting point. In terms of your meal spacing, I think waiting three to six hours between meals is a good way to go for all sorts of reasons. I think if you eat too frequently, then you might not fully maximize muscle protein synthesis at each meal, which going back to the resilience of the musculoskeletal system matters. And the reason for that is that there seems to be a so-called muscle full effect. Phil Atherton, who I think is still at the University of Nottingham, did a lot of nice early work on this. But basically, if you keep providing amino acids to someone following a meal, then it's not like muscle protein synthesis stays high and you actually need the provision of amino acids to drop between meals in order to maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis at the next meal. There are also things like the fact that it's probably best to give your, your teeth a break between meals. <laughs> those, those kinds of things that you only realize if, like me, you visited the dentist recently and found out that your tooth enamel has eroded more than is ideal because you consume too much fruit, which is quite strange when you think that you've been eating a really healthy diet relative to other people. Anyway, I think <laughs> front-loading front your calorie and carb intake within your eating window makes sense, regardless of when that eating window takes place. But again, factor in activity. With respect to protein, you want to spread it relatively evenly across meals. This is particularly important in countries such as Australia and England, because a lot of people in these countries have very little protein at breakfast and then lots and lots of protein at dinner. And it would be better to have similar amounts at both. There are quite clear data showing that a high protein breakfast is great for things like appetite control over the course of the day. I think the sweet spot is probably something like 0.4 to 0.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per meal. So for ease, if you're 100 kilos, that would be 40 to 50 grams of protein per meal. For the most part, that corresponds to something like a fist-sized portion of a high-protein food such as meat or fish or eggs. Regarding alcohol, finish that as early as possible. Mm -hmm. Bre breakfast is the best time for it. <laughs> if, if you are trying to reduce alcohol intake, then just fizzy soft drinks can be helpful. I think non-alcoholic beer can be a good option too. Interestingly, as an aside, that there are some data suggesting that non-alcoholic beer might actually be good for sleep in some ways. Mm. Then I think at the end of the day, stop consuming anything other than water by at least two hours before bedtime. Obviously you don't want to be hungry at bedtime. You also don't want to be stuffed. And for most people, I, I don't think it's smart to continue drinking water after that two hour mark because you're more likely to wake up in the middle of the night needing to pee. So just tune your fluid intake accordingly then the regularity of your meals matters. We haven't spoken about this, but one of the great things about time-restricted eating is that it makes people's meal timing much more regular, which by itself does seem to be good for metabolic health mm -hmm. and circadian function too. There aren't lots of studies looking at that yet, but I think there is some small effect. And I, I also think that people should regularize when they take certain supplements and medication. I won't go down that rabbit hole, but I touched on that in the talk that I mm. gave at your Congress. That's right. 
man, I think this this isn't chronobiology related. And I, I don't recall if I, if I spoke to you about this previously, Nathan, but at individual meals or snacks, if you're trying to improve your blood sugar control, you want to save carbohydrate rich items for the end of dietary events, if possible. Alpana Shukla has done some great work on this in people who have prediabetes or diabetes. And she's found that if people save carbohydrate rich foods, such as bread for the end of meals and instead have protein and fat and fiber rich foods at the start, they have much better blood sugar responses shortly after meals and also insulin responses too. So a simple way to implement that might be to have something like a salad at the start of each meal, which has also been shown to reduce total energy intake each day. And then finally, I'll just mention that for shift workers, all of the above applies too. And you probably want to pick a, an eating window each day that more or less corresponds to when you think your biological daytime is most of the time. So even if you're working rotating shifts, if you can keep the timing of that eating window relatively consistent right. from day to day, then I think you might yeah. benefit. And if you eat outside of that window, then just keep your snacks small. I think if you can select small snacks that are based on whole foods, maybe they're just sort of protein and fiber rich. So think of things like, it could be a, a whey protein drink, it could be boiled eggs, it could be nuts, it could be vegetables then those are, those are really good options. Wow. There was uh, a lot of great information there. Yeah, it was a huge download. Thank you. Um, and I'll just get my editor, Naomi, to cut out a bit about don't have coffee first thing in the morning. Drink beer before coffee. <laughs> <laughs> the Potter diet. Yeah. yeah. No, I'll add also that I, I don't implement everything that I say, I want to be transparent about that. So from my perspective, you want to do things that you think you can do and sustain. And yeah. also all of these things are relatively more important if your health is not very good. For me, I'm, I'm quite young. I'm healthy. I have a coffee or two before I start eating each day. And I don't think twice about it. My blood sugar control is fine. So for a lot of people, that kind of thing just doesn't matter. Yeah, but yeah, if point. you're trying to optimize your blood sugar control, then it's just a small thing you might want to consider. Well said, Greg. It's been amazing again, full of yeah, incredible information. Decide all those people off the top of your head, and always um, delivered with your amazing British accent. Put me to shame. <laughs> um, so. Thanks again. Any other, um, before we sign off, anything you wanted to promote, any resources, anything people can follow up on? Resources-wise, I wrote a free ebook a couple of years ago, which is named The Principles of Resilient Nutrition, and you can find it at resilientnutrition.com. It just introduces people to some diet agnostic principles that people can live by if, if they want to improve their health and performance. Otherwise, I have a website, which is gregpotterphd.com. People can get in touch there. I do offer some coaching and consultancy. I'm also on social media. 
unimaginatively at Greg Potter PhD. And, and I think that's it for now. Brilliant. Well, um, hopefully there's a next time. Um, and when that's the case, I really look forward to it. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, again, just to underscore, it's been great to get all the, the detailed information on those studies, the ins and outs, and, and put into context as well. So thanks again. Anytime. Thanks, Nathan. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.